0: Anne Bully is sitting on the bathroom floor in a house on the outskirts of Kyiv, sheltering from a Russian missile attack. An onslaught civilians would be forgiven for feeling is directed specifically at them. Nearly 70 missiles and drones were launched, says Ukraine's leadership, 51 of them downed. Imagine the destruction if more had got through. It's dark, very cold... There's no power, no communications, and the missiles are shaking the building. She's been stuck in the bathroom for hours. It's daunting, certainly, but I think
1: for us, it felt relatively safe in that I didn't feel the missile was going to land on us. But the bigger thing you're thinking about is where is this landing? This is landing somewhere, and that somewhere, given what we know is happening in Ukraine at the moment, is likely to be somewhere
0: people are. Anne handles communications for the New Zealand-run relief aid, and she's talking about her stint in Ukraine late last year. That's the horrifying thought, is where is this landing,
1: and who's being hit, and what's the impact?
0: Um, but what, why were you so certain that they weren't going to land on you? <laughs> I'm
1: sort of believing in a lucky gene, probably. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a really good question. I, yeah, I don't know. Um, you, I, I think that if you were too worried about that, it would be too hard to work there. Okay. You, you'd just be on edge constantly. You know, you also have to believe that you are going in there and you're going to be
0: relatively safe. But it's far from safe. As the conflict enters its second year, the risks are even greater, underlined by the disappearance of a Kiwi aid worker whose death was confirmed last week. The body of missing New Zealander Andrew Bagshaw has been found in eastern Ukraine. Andrew was a selfless uh, person, Uh, He took many personal risks and saved many lives. He
1: left home probably about April um, last year and when asked whether, whether he will come back, he said, not until it's finished.
0: I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today on The Detail, the Russian invasion has set off the fastest growing refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. Nearly 8 million people have fled their homeland. Six and a half million are displaced within Ukraine itself. UN figures show nearly 18 million people need urgent humanitarian assistance. That's food, shelter, income, education and health care. So the role of aid workers is crucial. As an example, Relief Aid has helped more than 30,000 people in the last year alongside its aid partners, helped by half a million dollars in donations from New Zealanders. But is it just too dangerous for volunteers now? Here's Relief Aid's founder, Mike Seawright, speaking to RNZ in the days after Andrew Bagshaw's disappearance. But it's an extremely Uh, volatile working situation there in Ukraine at the moment Uh, there's the possibility of detention by Russian forces which we've seen uh, with uh, humanitarian workers Uh, the very real risk of um, landmines and unexploded ordnance we've had our own team their friends um, have been damaged lost legs in fact delivering humanitarian assistance so it's a very difficult place to work and an anonymous Kiwi soldier says they just shouldn't be there without training and support. Full credit for what they're doing. They're doing, they're doing, a, great, they're doing a great job. But the realisation of an active war zone, things can change very, very fast.
1: It's a catch-22, isn't it? Because if, if you would never put an aid worker into a war zone that means you'll never take humanitarian aid in, which actually means that so many more people would die because people can't survive without medical supplies, without food, without the basics to live. In a water containers put water in, which you've got no water running. You know, light, warm blankets. In the middle of winter, you've got no heating. But I think the important thing is, if you're an aid worker in a conflict zone, you need to manage your risk. You need to be prepared, um, you need to be with people that have experience in the war zone and you need to be listening and you need to take risks which are relative to what you're achieving
0: as well. The reason why I'm talking to you is because, well, because of the story, sad story of Andrew Bagshaw and when news first broke that he was missing in Ukraine I thought of you because well we sort of have a family connection don't we yeah and you were you spent some weeks in Ukraine at the end of last year how does that make you feel to hear about a New Zealander you've recently been there a New Zealander who was doing similar work to you there how does it make you feel The feeling is more for his family
1: because when you're there, or even when you're going there, you're very aware of how difficult it is for the people you've left behind. And so, you know, I can imagine what it feels like for his parents, his friends, uh, the people who are close to him, because communications are very difficult as well, so It's hard to get information through. It's hard to know there will be different stories coming back about what might have happened. And I I think just that vacuum of unknown. Well, um, we communicated via WhatsApp mostly. He sent loads of pictures when he first went. He really stopped communicating all that regularly from about September and October. His sister felt that um, he was probably getting into the more dangerous work then, and he didn't want to worry us by communicating. We would rather of him that he communicated, but that was his way. He didn't want us to get upset.
0: So you... you how did it all happen? You flew out to where? So I flew from uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um to Warsaw,
1: and then from Warsaw went by bus um, into
0: Ukraine and, and straight into Kiev. So eight, 84 hours door-to-door. Well, this is your work. You're sort of immersed in it, but from a distance. So yeah. you're hearing lots of stories about what's going on, and obviously there's a lot of news stories about it. But what what were your first impressions from, in that bus ride to Kiev? That's <laughs> such an interesting question, because on the bus...
1: I met Mike C. Wright, Relief Aids founder in Warsaw. So we were on the bus together. He was the only man I would say probably under about 70 years old. So there was a couple of other men who would have been a lot older. and Mike's well under 70. Um, and then was women and mainly elderly women. All Ukrainians. And there was a reservation towards us, which was interesting. I think it was sort of, what are these two doing? But at four in the morning, we stopped at a a garage and I got off the bus and got into the toilet queue with um, all these Ukrainian ladies. And the woman behind me, who must have been into her 70s, was sort of stretching and I was stretching and she started pulling faces at me and smiling and I started pulling faces. It was suddenly like there was a quiet acceptance of me and obviously being there for a reason, which was something positive for them. And I think that was a, a lovely, warm realisation that we don't know what these two people are doing, but the fact that they have come by bus into Kiev actually means that they're doing something that's going to help. You were there in November, so it must have been freezing already. It was, so it snowed the second day I was there and it, the temperature never got above zero. Yeah, very cold, very icy. And where were yeah. you staying? on the outskirts of Kyiv. So we're in a suburb just on the outskirts of Kiev, And we are currently distributing aid up in Chernihiv, which is on the border of Belarus. So I also had some time up in Chernihiv.
0: How do you even get the supplies there? I mean, do you load a shipping container? Um, in Ukraine, mainly we're trucking um, supplies in.
1: So it depends what we're taking. Some of the food within Ukraine we're actually buying in Ukraine, so we're just moving it across Ukraine to areas where people can't get it. Um, and other aid supplies are coming in through Poland, so mainly
0: trucking. That's oh, so you're not actually loading up a shipping container here in New Zealand and shipping it off. That's yeah. what, I think that's what yeah. people imagine it to yeah. be. The only thing
1: we ship from New Zealand is we have a... A Dunedin st- uh, company that makes gas heaters, very nice gas heaters, uh, they're called ASEA. And they have started making stoves to be used in in Syria, is where we're actually shipping those to. So they make it, it's a very clever design, it's a flat pack stove. Um, ASEA are making them for us and they're donating the stoves. We have Ocean Bridge, which is a New Zealand shipping company, who have actually offered to ship them to Istanbul, and then we truck them from there. So that's that's the only aid we actually ship
0: from here, and that's that's a great Kiwi story. So the stuff that you take into Ukraine or Syria, apart from those things, is stuff that you buy where in Poland or in
1: yeah. other in, parts of Europe? Yeah. Um, for Syria, we it's all bought in Turkey, so we try and buy stuff as near as we can to where we need to get it to keep the shipping costs to a minimum. Mm-hmm. So we're always so for Syria, it's Turkey. Some of the aid we've been taking into Ukraine has actually come up from Turkey because we we know our supplies there, so it's come up. Some of it has been purchased in
0: Poland. With the case of Andrew Bagshaw. Yeah. I think what it brought out is um, some detail about what kind of preparations aid workers go through—the sort of the protocols, yeah. preparations to to ensure that you're safe when you're there, yeah. when you're on the ground working with people. So, for you, what did that involve? All of our team, who are our
1: international team, are trained in what to do. In a hostile environment if you're working in a hot environment and you're traveling somewhere in a vehicle you'll keep the windows down so that if there's a missile blast the windows aren't blasted in on you and you'll travel without a seat belt on so that if there's a missile striking you have to get out of the car and run quickly you can do but if you take the ukraine environment it's cold, so you don't want to be travelling with your window down. So now, what we've got is we've got blast film on the windows of the vehicles, and it's very icy on the road. So actually, you're more likely to be in a road traffic accident <laughs> than you are to have to jump out. So you're going to wear your seatbelt because if the car starts sliding or rolls, you want to be seatbelted mm-hmm. in. So we have very, you know, we have the big picture plus
0: the localised. What does that mean? Say, before you would go out and distribute stuff to people you'd be having a discussion about different scenarios what would you be doing
1: when i was there we were visiting families so we'd be talking about where are we going who are we going to see that may be mines, so nobody's going off the road nobody's stopping nobody's getting out of the car when you're traveling to the destination for example we visited two elderly ladies who live in an apartment blocks that have been hit by missiles, so what are the risks of being there because there is still damage to the apartment block? Uh, What we'll do if there is a problem? What's our exit route? So if something happens while we're on the road and we can't take the same road back, what's our evacuation route? What time are we expected back? What's the communication process?
0: And when you got to the apartment block in this case... Do you have to kind of sneak around and make sure that you're not seen? I mean, is it that no. kind of cloak and dagger? No,
1: no, no. That's more likely to cause a problem. And we've always got our Ukrainian team with us too. So when, when you get somewhere, I mean, they had phoned ahead in this case, so they'd phoned ahead. So the two ladies that we were visiting, Olga and Dina, they knew we were coming. What did you yeah. take them? We, we'd taken them, aid previously. So uh, they had blankets, they had solar lamps, they had polythene, so their windows were still covered in the polythene. This is aid that we are taken into them back in April. We had uh, taken them water containers because there's no running water, so still, six months later, they were using those things. And I took them from ginger nuts from New Zealand as well. <laughs> They're an absolute delight, these two ladies. They've had a terrible time. Their uh, missile has literally blown out the whole the centre of their apartment they were evacuated from the cellar in the middle of a missile missiles flying in all directions they were olga was the first person back to the apartment block um and dina who's well into her 70s is very arthritic so she's also back home and because we we had talked to them before and told their story so i also took them photographs the photographs on my computer that had been taken off them and how we had used their stories in some of our fundraising campaigns. So that was a really lovely sharing of what goes into helping them, that it, it's there's a lot of humanity behind the humanitarian work that we do. What was it
0: like inside their apartment?
1: It was bitterly cold, absolutely bitterly cold. It was, there was snow on the ground and I was wearing every layer of clothing I have and... It was absolutely freezing because the windows are still out, still damaged to their doors, the shrapnel holes in their walls. Um, so very, very cold, but they were so warm. So there was this sort of lovely, you know, cold, cold climate and and overwhelming you know devastation to where they're living and yet you know these lovely ladies one had some apples which they'd had an apple tree which had been in the orchard near the apartment and she was giving you know wanting to give me apples and the other one was just sort of holding my hand and thanking me and joking with me about how cold my hands were which is what's quite funny given the situation. What would they do with their days? Olga is actually she's working with and Dina, and this you know this is so hard for people because there's no power any at the time so and now it's winter it's dark at four o'clock in the afternoon it's getting light about eight in the morning you've got no light at all, you've got no television, you've got no radio you've got most of the people who, in their case, and this is true of a lot of apartments, have moved out, and it's absolutely soul destroying you're just sitting there in the cold in the dark you know inside even most of the time it's pretty dark mm. and I mean, even for us we were wearing head torches pretty much all the time inside and cooking they were cooking they had a single camping gas stove in their kitchen yeah and
0: and it's yeah. been like that for months and months and months. it's
1: been yeah. like that for months mm. and it will continue to be like that for months and months
0: why are they still there? I mean, presumably there, there are options for them. They don't have to be there. There are options
1: for people to leave the country, I think. Um, but a lot of people don't want to leave. And that's particularly true of the elderly. You know, they don't speak another language. It's been their home. It's been, you know, where they were with their husband. It's been often where their children grew up. And they would rather risk staying
0: near Bakhmut's front lines, lost souls wander the streets. Those who can't leave, won't leave, or have given up caring. (laughs) I put some food on the fire, I chopped some wood, says Svitlana, and decided to go out for some fresh air. (laughs) Dimitro pays no heed to the shelling. This is my land, he says, I won't leave. What what are the things that stay in your mind from that trip? I think what
1: stays in my mind most are the people, the people like Olga and Dina. So you're so aware that there's just elderly people who are sitting on their own, you know, just in this cold, dark environment with a war raging around them, and not really knowing what's going to happen next. Mm. Um, we also, in Chernihiv. we were visiting families and we met a family <laughs> It had once been their home. I'm making a video, just to uh, making a video. So how long do you think it will take you to build your home back again? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it was um, husband and wife with two children. They had a seven-year-old son who was autistic and a three-year-old boy. There was snow on the ground, thick snow. The three-year-old was just like any other three-year-old. He had a bucket and spade, and he was putting snow into his bucket and making like, little snow castles rather than sand castles. Um, but but the house had just been blown away completely. The only thing that stood was half a, a chimney, which which she told me was where their kitchen had been. And do you get any help from
0: anywhere? Uh, help
1: and the only other thing that stood was that they had beehives at the back of the property and they were painted. They were beautifully hand-painted all in Ukrainian colours with flowers on them. So the beehives are still there even though the trees were broken off around where the missiles had snapped trees. And they are now living in a one-bedroom apartment with three other people.
0: Uh, and my mother and uh, your husband. Uh, Her husband? Yeah. Seven, yeah, Seven yeah. people in the in yes. flat. Yeah. Tam, yeah. 36 yeah. square meters. Yeah.
1: You know, their future is so unknown. You know, they want to rebuild. But but when? And do you have everything you need there? No. <laughs> 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 house. House. I know, I know, you need a house. <laughs> when will they be able to live somewhere as a family again? Because they've lost everything.
0: Yeah, well,
1: um, so. Approximately 60,000 of euros is the cheapest variant of the building.
0: 60, yes. Yeah. No. Not, no. Would you go back?
1: Yes. If, if there was value in me going back. The other thing for me is... I've always believed in what we did, otherwise, I wouldn't do it. So, you know, I've believed that however big the problem, you can't help everybody, but you can help some people, and the aid we take in makes a difference. What I really wasn't so aware of until I went there was the psychological lift it gives people of knowing that they're not forgotten, of knowing that somebody out there cares and talking to them you know and then they would say you know and you're from New Zealand and sometimes you know where is New Zealand (laughs) and it's like and you know you've come all all this way and people in New Zealand are helping us that just meant so much to them you, you know people would just hug you these huge hugs to say thank you and that I wasn't aware of how you know important that is for people psychologically that age that it's more than just the aid it's somebody cares we're not forgotten humanity which has been shaken their faith in it is actually you know there is still
0: humanity there's still people out there who just want to help Since the interview, Anne tells me that food deliveries by their partner Ukrainian volunteer organisations 10 kilometres from the front lines are becoming more and more difficult. They had been getting windows of two to three days when they were able to move, but now the shelling is almost constant, she says. For this reason, they deliver long-life supplies, but they are still gravely concerned for these increasingly vulnerable people. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Veal. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Anne Bulley. Kakite ano.